Good morning. I'm not supposed to be here. Now, before you all start thinking and agreeing why that is and running over congratulating Howie, um, <laughs> I mean something a little more mundane. I should have been here a couple of weeks ago, and I want to thank Mackenzie and Rachel for doing such a wonderful job in substituting for me and my failure to be here at the appointed time. Um, as a result of that, I've had all kinds of uh, diminishing of expectations. When we talked about speaking here in chapel today, one of our campus pastors, let's call him Scott, <laughs> said it's the week before spring break, attendance will be low, do not take it personally. <laughs> then there was the fairly threatening, I thought, email that went out yesterday, planted in order to be pruned, and I thought perhaps it was an admonition to get a haircut. Um, so with that, with that background, for better or worse, I wanted uh, to take note of two people, two saints that the church remembers this week. Uh, two people who lived far apart in time and in space, and uh, yet I think their stories, both separately and perhaps as they can be tied together, provide some insight and guidance for us. The first was Jonathan Edwards, uh, who died 22nd of March, uh, 1758, two and a half centuries ago. As you can tell from that date, uh, he was a person of the 18th century, lived in New England back in the Northeast, Connecticut and Massachusetts for most of his life, a theologian, a preacher, a writer, a teacher, a missionary. He was the product of uh, an impressive family of uh, Puritans. His grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, was perhaps the leading pastor and theologian in uh, colonial New England for decades. Edwards' wife, uh, Sarah Pierpont, was from an even more prominent family. Among other things, her father was the founder of Yale University, uh, which Edwards, by the way, began to attend at the ripe old age of 13. Um, Edwards had a grandson who perhaps did not turn out so well. His name was Aaron Burr. Uh, some of you may know him for the shooting of Alexander Hamilton and then other misdeeds uh, later on. Edwards is considered by some to be the first uh, great American philosopher, that is, someone whose thinking was shaped by the American experience, much of which um, was done in his case uh, in the middle part of the 1700s uh, as he served a church in Northampton, Massachusetts, in the central part of that state. He served there uh, from 1728 until 1750, uh, when they were finally sick and tired of him and asked him to uh, leave. He had uh, at one time uh, um, been willing to allow those baptized to the Eucharist and then decided only those who could demonstrate they had had a personal conversion experience were allowed in. That didn't sit very well with many of his congregation, and they decided, big shot, even though he may be, that he needed to move on. He uh, then went and served briefly as a missionary to American Indians in Massachusetts, and then uh, briefly at the end of his life uh, as president of Princeton University. 
Let me say just a couple of things about uh, the context of his world, of those New England religious reformers, the Puritans of the uh, 17th and 18th century, because I think uh, it explains a little bit about, uh, about his life and its significance. Uh, on, on one level, they were all about planting too, and very practically, uh, most of them were farmers, and in those days, uh, it was common to refer to farmers as planters. A planter was a synonym for a farmer, and so a plantation simply meant a farm. And perhaps, unfortunately, plantations became associated with the big cotton farms of the slave south, and the term lost some of its original meaning, which was much uh, simpler. The Puritans undertook what one of them referred to as an errand into the wilderness. By leaving England, they were going to what they considered wilderness, what they thought of was a new world. It was new to them. It wasn't so new to all the people already living there. Um, and part of what their errand was, their task, was to bring the good news of the gospel, um, whether it was wanted or not by those already here. But just as important, maybe more important for them, was uh, they wanted to live, and in the way they lived, to be an example to those back home, in their case in England, uh, to show them how to live in a godly society, to be a church, that would in turn be an example for how England could purify, hence Puritan, uh, and reclaim its uh, godliness. They were what, uh, they wanted to become what John Winthrop famously said in 1630, drawing on Matthew, was to be a city upon a hill. Um, Winthrop wrote that, and the, and the second line is the important one here, for we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill, and here's the key point. The eyes of all people are upon us. That is, in living godly lives, they would be seen by others. They would be watched. And that's been an important theme in American history. Countless leaders, whether political, economic, religious, social, have used that phrase, being a city upon a hill. Perhaps most famously in this uh, region, Ronald Reagan, who's buried up the street, spoke about the United States as a city upon a hill, an example from, uh, from whom the rest of the world would learn. But the failure to do that, the failure to be this example, comes at a pretty high cost. And um, as Winthrop put it, if we shall deal falsely with our God in the work we have undertaken, we shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God. So one great challenge they faced was to actually live the way they believed that they should, because if they fell short, then they would serve not God, but evil. And the Puritans were plagued for decades, even centuries, with this fear of failure, this fear of falling short, a sense that they were declining into a depraved state. They feared being that single seed we heard about in the gospel reading that would not grow, that they were going to break their covenant, their contract with God. Now, this fear that was with them led to repeated 
efforts at reviving religious spirit um, in, in both centuries and led Jonathan Edwards uh, to give his most famous sermon, one that is used in all the standard textbooks of American literature because it's a great example of dramatic writing, that sinners in the hands of an angry God, and I cannot resist reading a couple of the most famous sentences from that. The style is dramatic, not altogether typical, actually, of Edwards, but typical of uh, the revival spirit of the mid-1700s. At one point he said, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. And it goes on. Now, um, that sort of preaching is not much in evidence uh, today, certainly not around here. I haven't heard uh, much of it. And I have to say, even then, it went over about as well with uh, his congregation as it would today. It was not well received by those uh, listening. But the imagery, particularly of the insect and the fire and so forth, has lived in American history uh, as well. And surely that sense of failing to live as God would have us live is very much with us. And there is in our society today plenty of cases of people believing, fearing that God is punishing us for those failures. Even natural disasters are given this kind of uh, explanation. The Puritans had a second challenge or problem that I think is with us in the world today as well or an implication of their desire to be a city upon a hill um, going well beyond religious observance has implications for us. That is, there has been in the American, both colonial America and then into the United States, this tendency to dictate to others how they should live, how they should think, how they should behave. And this includes not only Christianity, but also commitments to political democracy, to free enterprise, that belief that the United States should be an example to others, and others in the world should embrace American values and follow them. At its best, this has led the United States to, to take uh, a role in fighting uh, empire, tyranny, the Nazis and fascists, the communists, and these are all things that uh, I think are too often overlooked by critics of this country uh, and were great, great steps. But at its worst, this view has led to the oppression of other peoples who may not embrace those values or may not embrace them in the same way that Americans do. Put pretty Dramatically, it's led the United States to intervene in many nations in the world, including militarily, and some would cite Iraq and Afghanistan as an example of that in our own time. And this has been especially true in the Americas, in the Western Hemisphere, much of United States history believing that the Americas were a special zone or sphere in which we had uh, the leading role to play. And uh, there are many in the Western Hemisphere who resent American meddling. Now, I don't want to get into a discussion of U.S.-Latin American relations. That's a deep and complex and contested subject. But I think there is uh, an element of its source in this Puritan vision, this Puritan errand, uh, and a suggestion that sometimes following God can lead one to go seriously awry. And all that brings me to the second person 
who is remembered this week. Today, in fact, March 24th, uh, 30 years ago, Archbishop Oscar Romero um, was assassinated in El Salvador. And El Salvador is one country in which the United States has often intervened and not always happily. Uh, I'm sure many of you know his story. He was an El Salvadorian priest, um, rose up to become bishop of the capital, San Salvador, in 1970. Romero was first thought to be pretty politically conservative and a supporter of the regime, but he became more and more politically active, as many Catholic priests did in that country. Um, he made clear that he was not a communist or a Marxist, but nor was he an admirer of capitalism. And um, the church, led by Romero and others, became one of the focal points of opposition to the government in El Salvador. Many priests were attacked, some killed, and uh, as I said 30 years ago, Romero uh, was assassinated while performing the Eucharist at the altar um, in a uh, shocking act that still resonates uh, today. His funeral was attended by somewhere between 50 and 250,000 people. Uh, 40 or 50 were killed. Uh, there was tear gas, gunfire, and so forth as the authorities tried to uh, control the service. The alleged leader of the group that assassinated Romero, and it is still denied, so I'll say alleged, the alleged leader was trained by the United States in military tactics and I think can be seen as the downside, a negative implication of um, being a city upon a hill and this tendency of Americans to get involved militarily in other places. Now the service group that's going to El Salvador, who will be blessed shortly, represent a very different kind of intervention, but they carry that history with them as our neighbors carry that history with them. Before his death, shortly before his death, Romero said, those who surrender to the service of the poor through love of Christ will live like the grain of wheat that dies. It only apparently dies. If it were not to die, it would remain a solitary grain. The harvest comes because of the grain that dies. He went on, we know that every effort to improve society, above all when society is so full of injustice and sin, is an effort that God blesses, that God wants, that God demands of us. So being a city upon a hill can lead in the wrong way, and yet we are still called to serve that world, to seek to root out injustice. And Romero, of course, was drawing on today's gospel reading. This story from John follows uh, Jesus' Palm Sunday entrance into Jerusalem. Greeks ask to see Jesus. Not a bad question, by the way. I think one that we ask all the time. Jesus responds with the planting metaphor and one that previews his coming death. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Seeds must die to give life, as Jesus died to give us life. In death, in his death, there's resurrection. There's glory, not defeat. Jesus promises us, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people 
to myself. So the answer to the Greeks is to see Jesus by seeing Jesus on the cross. And so we're called to die to self and selfishness, called to lives of discipleship and servanthood. Now here we are in this week before spring break, before Palm Sunday, and then Holy Week. As a community, we scatter. We go off and undertake our errands, including those that are going to El Salvador, home of Oscar Romero. We scatter, but together we journey to the cross, striving to see Jesus. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, you called your servant, Oscar Romero, to be a voice for the voiceless poor and to give his life as a seed of freedom and a sign of hope. Grant that inspired by his sacrifice and example, we may, without fear or favor, witness to your word who abides, your word who is life, even Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be praise and glory now and forever. Amen. <laughs>